0: Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast, a multimedia project intended to highlight the careers of leaders of color across the healthcare industry. Students, early professionals, and the community at large can expect to gain valuable, unapologetic insight on the career journeys of individuals whose lived experience and personal mission has been centered in advancing health equity. Thanks for listening. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Christopher Fan, Director of Language Services at BJC Healthcare in St. Louis, Missouri. Chris, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. Humble humble to be um, invited to join.
0: Of course, of course, absolutely. So, uh, you know, we start every conversation off uh, with the same question to our guest, which is, what was life like growing up for you?
1: Yeah, so that's it. Even when you even gave me that pre-question, it was kind of hard to 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 answer in a really specific, um, in a really specific way, but I'll give you kind of pieces of my life that I remember very distinctly. Um, so I I grew up probably predominantly in the East Coast, um, on the border of upstate New York and northern Pennsylvania. So if you guys know where Watkins Glen or Ithaca, New York is, that's kind of the counties that I got to be around. Um, life growing up, the two things that I would say are the most important kind of most things that I think about as identity forming for me was first, number one, being a child of immigrant parents. My parents are immigrants from Taiwan. Um, They came in the seventies when they were obtaining master's degrees and PhDs um, in kind of the STEM fields. Um, So growing up with a very real mindset of what it means to be Taiwanese. Um, But then on the flip side, I grew up in a town where my family was the only Asian American family in my small town. So, you know, life growing up was really interesting in the sense of when I was home, there was an expectation of the culture that I lived out. And then the moment I left the four walls of my house, there was a completely different culture I had to live. So if there was ever a conversation around code switching that you've had on the healthcare hustle, and no matter matter in what capacity, that was something that I had to learn very quickly. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think is very real, and I wonder how many people who are listening to this can relate to it, especially for small town or rural individuals, is the idea of growing up in a community where everyone knew who you were. And on every, probably any day of the week, they would be willing to give you the jacket off their back. They would be willing to mm. give you a ride at any point in time. But in November, when there was an election, they would easily vote against your own rights. Mm. And I say that as a person of color. So I kind of, so it was one of those very interesting moments of, I knew the people, they knew me they knew my family.
0: Yeah.
1: But politically, when you go to that election, we knew, I knew what they were gonna vote for. And it was in direct, um, it was in direct contest to my own civil rights and to my own needs. Um, and that was just a really interesting duality to live through. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like life growing up before I left there for college and things like that.
0: Wow, that's so, you know, number one, thank you for sharing in a very succinct way, but a very raw way as well. I think a lot of us can definitely, um, we can relate to, you know, the aspect of learning how to code switch very early on. And I think that, you know, you having um, parents that, you know, migrated to the United States, it's also provides obviously a different lens, a different perspective. And I love you calling out, you know, hey, people in my small town would give me the jacket off my back. But, you know, when it came to, you know, politics, it was a little different. Do you feel like, you know, where you're from regarding the states and just your experiencing being here and, and, and learning all that you did growing up, do you think that that influenced your style as a leader at all?
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. So growing up in the States, um, I would say probably the most important thing I learned very quickly as an American is this idea of individualism, that it really is upon you and only you to kind of, become, or that's the myth that is taught, right? Is that you alone hold the keys to your future and that if you try really hard, you're going to get there. Um that shapes me as a leader, it shapes me as a person. Um, I would say the piece that very much tempers it and challenges it every day is growing up with a um, East Asian expectation of your community is more important than you and that your family Mm -hmm. is more important than you and that you owe it to center your family and your community because of the knowledge of what they've done for you to position you to be successful, right? So this idea that you are never alone and you are not alone, which is actually a positive thing, right? That your accomplishments is a direct result and a direct gift of the generations before you of trying to make places better for you. And so like, it's a very interesting Kind of duality i once again it's a very real duality I, I live through every day so i would say as a leader some of the things i have to challenge myself with is am i centering myself when i make decisions or am i centering my team or am i centering my organization or am i centering my community that my mission yeah. is asking me to think about
0: yeah wow that's actually just hearing you have that duality is really interesting because i think when i like reflect on my experiences as, as a black american it's not necessarily that so much, and it is a part of so much has been done for me, but it's more of a so much is more left to do. So I have to center, you know, others in a certain kind of way. Whereas with yours, it's so much has been given to me. And also there's still a lot that needs to be done. But, you know, this idea of removing yourself from your lens as a leader is actually really interesting. Um, and I would want to, I'm going to put a pin into that because I want to chew on that a little bit, you know, Uh, later down the road of our conversation yeah so so what it what, what was it you know during um maybe high school or even before that that really got you on this journey towards healthcare or health or just making things better for people in general yeah
1: yeah so um I never thought I was going into healthcare. Um my parents always wanted me to be a doctor and you know you can insert any <laughs> stereotypical hilarious <laughs> hilarious uh, um conversation in that one. But they really just you know they wanted me to be a doctor not um really much really because they really wanted me to make an impact in the world. I never really wanted to. I aspired to go into the American Foreign Service my whole life. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to be an ambassador. I wanted to work across the world trying to connect people um that are diverse in ways that join them together and um, kind of this idea of how do you how do you really make people understand one another in a way that you don't have to change them but you just honor them um thought i was going to go to the foreign service it didn't work out the way i wanted to so after college um i went to south africa for a for a summer um ironically and well well um well timed i went during the world cup so that was great Um, But really, I was there for three months and what I was doing was I was, um, I thought I was going to help um, young, young black um, families who lost one or both of their parents to HIV AIDS, I thought I was just going to help them with English, just this Mm -hmm. idea of how do you get them to be used to speaking English and kind of the kind of an ESL thing. And very quickly, what I learned, especially because I worked not in Cape Town, Cape Town, but I worked in the townships of Cape Town, where if anyone knows about kind of any country other than the Western world, the moment you go into the suburbs, that's where the poverty hits. And that's where a lot of, um, I would say, Black South Africans live, as opposed to kind of the white and the mixed um, groups of South Africa. And what I found out really fast was it wasn't my job to, to get people to do ESL. It was my job to give them real life skills to matriculate through high school and eventually go to college, because what they weren't given was opportunity. And what they faced every day were intentional policies at the local, state, and national level that wanted them to fail, yeah. that that kind of tried to predetermine their failure. So then at all times, there could be kind of this idea that you would never succeed, but somehow it would still be your fault. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so with that, when I, came, when I came back to the States, that kind of opened my eyes to the idea of, you know, whether the Foreign Service or whether anything I wanted to do, one of the biggest things that were the barriers to someone's success was their health. And not so much the choices they could make for their own health, but what were the pieces literally built around them that where that decision may not even be in their own hands, yeah. that they may not be been positioned to make a good choice to be healthy or to or to thrive in a way where all the other parts of their lives could actually fall into place, right? So if you lose your mother to HIV AIDS at 12, and then you lose your father at to HIV AIDS at 15, I mean, at what point is college <laughs> a conversation for you? Yeah. Right? Like at that point, that's survival. Right. And that's not just survival for you, that you probably have a sibling. And how do you help, help them survive? So just the idea of um, health, was really something that opened my eyes. And so at that point, um, I decided to um, go to WashU for a social work and a public health master's degree. So dual degrees um, with the idea that I was going to try to marry the two skill sets of understanding population health and population health change with the skill set of social work. And that's how do you actually get to know people and how do you empower people to make the best choices for themselves? Or how do you empower Com- communities um, to make those choices, right? So instead of dictating to them what is the best choice, how do you give them the resources to ultimately make the best choice for um, for who they are and what they need in that moment? So kind of how I fell into,
0: fell
1: into healthcare as a career.
0: Wow. Uh, number one, what a story. <laughs> um, and 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 I don't know how many folks actually, you know, travel to another country, see things, come back, but have a a lens that necessarily isn't your own. Like it's not like you're a black South African, right? That like went over there like to do mission work but to be able to come back and still apply what you learned to communities in the United States I think is uh, incredible. And another thing that made me think when you were talking is man, when did Chris develop this lens for policy and understanding that, hey, there's stuff happening above people's heads or you know at a level that the average citizen average global citizen may not know about but directly impacts them i think a lot of people in this day and age still struggle with that even though we're all you know more aware of historical things that happen and how certain inequities are still perpetuated but where did that start for you like how did you develop that mindset to look at the world out
1: yeah so that's wow that's a great question that's really hard um maybe I'll give you a a personal story and then an academic story. So, Personal story, what made me really understand, kind of get the sense of it, was just my parents struggle with kind of telling me what the difference is between being Taiwanese and Chinese, right? We Mm -hmm. speak the same language. Ultimately, historically, you go back far enough in the generations. We're all dynastically from the same grouping of people. Mm -hmm. Um, But my parents really tried to instill in me the the difference between it means to be proud to be Taiwanese versus proud to be Chinese, right? So there's a lot of politics Mm -hmm a lot of civil war, uh, Chinese civil war related things. My dad um, is indigenous, His my dad's family is indigenous to the Taiwan Island. So his um, family's um, even opinions about the nationalists of China um, were drastically different than my mother's who were part of the people who fled communist China to Taiwan. So personally, I already started to get a sense of like, wow, you know, politically and, you know, at a very high level, my identity is being shaped pretty quickly. Um, academically, when I went to Michigan State, you know, because I really wanted to go into the foreign service and things like that, um, I majored in identity politics. Basically, it's called comparative cultures and policy. And policy, but really, what we were focused on was um, how do individual and community identities um, shape political process and mm-hmm. policy change? But then into the reverse, how do policies and the real world forcibly change your identities? Um, so I studied um, kind of identity formations post genocide. So, looking at what happened to the Khmer Rouge, what happened to um, survivors of the Holocaust, and things like that, and see and seeing how your identity is not always shaped by your own thoughts, but literally by what has happened to your your community, what has happened to your family, and then subsequently what policies were created to then help shape your your identity, um, you know. And then you know another way as a as a millennial, and I'll claim that and be happy about being a millennial is one of the biggest. Um, identity formations was Columbine. Mm. You know, one of those moments where um, what it was like to be locked down in a school and hide and being taught at a very young age to be afraid that at any point someone you may know very well is going to come in armed and shoot you. Um, You know, that's a quick, that's a very real generational identity formation. Um, and so it's not because of your own experience. I wasn't in Colorado when it happened. Um, but the idea of what policies happened or did not happen after that very quickly shapes my identity of and what I and how and what I feel about certain topics. right. So, you know, it's just you know, that's kind of how I figured it out. I mean, i I would say that it probably was given to me by my parents because my parents had to struggle with their own identities of what does it mean to leave? everything to come to a country that is going to force you to redefine who you are. And so I got to feel it. And then, you know, as any generation or any person, there are real um, moments in your life that if you're willing to learn from it, you'll really much understand that's when your identity shifted somewhere.
0: Wow. Dang. I think that is, again, I'm just, you know, reflecting in real time as you're speaking. I'm just thinking about the different generational events that have happened to different cohorts of people. At this point in time, you know, those cohorts having different generations within them and then, you know, something of healthcare and COVID for example, and like yep. how really COVID would influence my identity as a younger millennial, older Gen Z healthcare professional now, mm-hmm. right? And like the attitudes that I have towards certain things. And so, but I've never really thought about, you know, that collective event. What is that collective piece? You know, personally, I've thought about it. We've talked about this before, but just professionally, or just how I'm actually interacting with the rest of society. I've never thought about it um, like that. And I think that it would be it would be cool if more people had that approach. And I kind of I want to directly pivot into something um super specific now, mm-hmm. as it relates to your role and what you've been doing um in healthcare. For the last, you know, few years, so we hear identity is is a critical piece. You know, we hear that the policy piece is is an important kind of knowledge um, base that you have. So, can you talk to some of the listeners about language services, your yeah. journey through language services in healthcare, and why language services is important when it comes to a person's health in general?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. Um you know, so I didn't start at Barnes Jewish Hospital or BJC Healthcare in language services per se. I actually started as an education development coordinator for the Center for Diversity and Cultural Conference. So my role, along with my leader, um, was to basically develop training and education opportunities to kind of talk about um, the need to understand how diverse healthcare is and actually rendering healthcare to others. Um, But also just the sheer fact that healthcare, like every other organization and every other profession is deeply inequitable, right? And those were with intentional and unintentional decisions from policies to practices, to programs and to people, right? We know that there were many decisions made across all of those functions that created a health system where we still have deep inequities. so as I went through there, there was a, um, the leader of language services at the time at Barnes Jewish Hospital had left. Um, and, you know, our, our leaders, uh, Dr. Stephen Player, um, gave me the opportunity to um, help him and, and help our department kind of step through that. And so, you know, one of the things that Immediately came to, to my mind when I was asked that was just my own family's experience in healthcare. Mm. So granted, my parents are PhDs, right? So in no way, shape, or form can you not consider them very, very smart, intelligent people. Right. Um, but the very fact that they have an accent or the very fact that their knowledge of healthcare in English might be limited, the experiences they received in that small town in the hospital was was, was really interesting, right? So um they were treated as if they didn't know anything. They were treated as if they didn't know what like blood pressure was, or they didn't, mm-hmm. where people would even just ignore answering questions because they just didn't have the, they just didn't want to answer a question in a way with someone who had an accent. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, in this was before the Affordable Care Act was before a lot of uh, joint commission requirements, things like that. So this was where like my parents had to read everything in English. They had to receive every information in English. Um, so the very fact that like, sometimes I had to sit with them and kind of explain as best as I could as a young person, what I, they were, what I thought healthcare was trying to tell them um, and, and things like that. Right. So, so all that dovetails into this idea of what language services is. So, you know, a lot of people, when they hear the term language services, they're going to think of, oh, interpreters, right. Yeah. The, the physical people who, you know, um, help be the communicator that help the communication bridge. And that is a major piece of it. Um, and every single person um, who dedicates their life as an interpreter, whether it's certified as an ASL or American Sign Language or um, another spoken language, you know, they they are true heroes. Because what, what we want to talk about as language service is the idea that um, whether people want to admit it or not, we live in an almost English-only society.
0: Mm-hmm. And we judge people
1: based on their capacity to understand and complete their life in in English yeah. and what happens with that is you can imagine that the one of the main main barriers to your health outcomes is understanding the decisions that may be made for you because you don't have you are not feeling empowered to make the decision for yourself yeah. so you think about how if you are an immigrant you are a refugee you are deaf or hard of hearing you are blind right yeah. what are what are all the pieces of healthcare that now become close to insurmountable? Absolutely. As, as a person who learned English my entire life, there are certain pieces of healthcare I still do not understand very well. Yeah. So I can't even imagine when you add the layer of language to right. that. As and when you work language,
0: in the industry, yeah, <laughs> the next thing that we yeah, don't know. To work
1: <laughs> in the industry or to be or to be served by the yeah. industry. I can't imagine the amount of I wouldn't. I wouldn't say forced, but but it it does feel that way in some sense. The the forced trust and the forced um, locus of control many people have to give to healthcare professionals because they just can't make that decision, right? And the amount, mm. right? And you and so language service as a whole is is a way to tackle an accessibility issue. Right, we know that the number one way that people can have much better health outcomes is the idea of, can they access all the things they need to have good health? Yeah. Um, a lot of people talk about food, a lot of people talk about housing, a lot of people talk about socioeconomic status and another critical piece is language. Yep. Can you can you even understand what is happening to you or to your family member? And can you make a, a an, um, the right decision for you? And so language services in many ways is how do we ensure And I'll use BJC um, just as the example for what we say. You know, some of our mission mission demands certain things that we will give the world's best medicine to people. Our tagline is saying that you deserve extraordinary care. And I always like to say, when we think about language access or language services, that mission and that tagline for us has to be unconditional. That you deserve extraordinary care regardless of your language. That we will give you best and world-class medicine regardless of your language. Or maybe... In celebration of the language um, diversity you bring, right? And so, there's a lot of things that go into language access, right? We have our interpreters, we have translations, but we also have this this understanding of the linguistic, of the cultural linguistic pieces that I don't think always carry over, right? People come with different experiences in healthcare. They come with different expectations of the relationships between their healthcare provider and their family or they themselves. And that is also a huge learning that we need to have in the United States, especially for those who've grown up most of their lives, not having to interact with immigrants, refugees, the deaf or the blind communities.
0: Yeah. You. So thank you for that response. And you actually answered Uh, follow-up, which was going to be, what are the biggest challenges regarding providing (laughs) culturally confident care in terms of language? But I think you bring up a lot of amazing points. I think, number one, it's just, as a person who born here, raised here, whole family's been here for as long as I know, um, pre or post slave trade, um, like, (laughs) it's like, for me, you know, when you think of language, you don't necessarily think of how constrictive language can mm-hmm. be and I'm and you know we have on the health equity side it's like well we want to make sure the literacy levels for everything we're putting out as a health system is at least at a fifth grade reading level so we can have you know patients understand it if they're coming from mm-hmm. xyz community but it's like that same kind of thinking really does go to to individuals who also don't speak English like just just yeah. straight up and I think that at times we forget how much in the moment, whether it's that, you know, provider to patient interaction, and it's a 20 minute, you know, exchange, or whether it is the administrator that they're never going to see, whether it's the, you know, registration person checking them in, how much power and influence and control we actually have over somebody's Mm -hmm. lives. In those small moments, right? Like you don't even think it's, it's easy just to forget that, like how much impact we actually can make on people's lives from behind a screen right yeah and so it's it's actually it's a it's a good thing to know but I can imagine it's a little overwhelming you know for some Mm -hmm. people that are listening because it's like oh wow like there's a lot that I have to consider actually before I step into the shoes as a healthcare administrator or provider Mm -hmm. or whatever you know
1: yeah absolutely and I and I would I would say probably a a low risk way to think about it, how it may have happened in someone's life already is, you know, for all the people who maybe traveled for, on vacation overseas or in a place that is not as English speaking. So there's places in the United States where that you can go into communities where um, you know, English is not a dominant language. So if any of you had that experience, right, I would probably give the example of like, imagine you were um, overseas on vacation. And I just want you to think about the amount of power all the people, just the service people had over you because they had a mastery of their language. So whatever you said, they could make the determination of how they were going to serve you, right? Whether it was the food you ordered, the drinks you wanted, um, the directions you were asking for, And that's pretty low risk, right? Like, you you know, you order, you try to order orange juice and they bring you apple juice, right? Like there's not like the the risk of what's going to happen to you is probably pretty slim. But imagine flipping that into, you know, you have a congenital heart issue
0: mm.
1: and i always try to ask people think about it man if you were in taiwan where my family's from wow and the only thing you heard was chinese every step of the way just how little do you feel in your own decision making Yeah, from the very beginning the moment where you're like i need to get a taxi or i need to get a car to get to the hospital right every step of the way there is someone who says I own almost absolute power over your own decision making where you whatever you tell me I can dictate through my own language and cultural lenses how I'm going to actually serve you and so right you can imagine when it is high stakes yeah when it is very high stakes and I would say anything in healthcare is pretty high stakes for a patient or their family members you know it's just a good reminder of like like how how much do you want people to give you culturally competent or i would just say just even basic compassionate care if you if you mm. broke your arm in a country yeah. that didn't speak english right just the yeah. amount of people you pray and hope had your hat would be willing to try to involve you in your own decisions and we give you the time to do that right are we doing that in our own healthcare systems and i would say you know mixed at best i would say
0: yeah it's interesting because that is such a it's it's crazy. It's really crazy that you put it that way. I think that it really um it gives me a renewed appreciation, and you said compassionate care, but culturally competent as well. Because beyond like imagine the serv- like the level of service that you would want in another country, just imagine the goodwill that you would hope people mm-hmm. were to have, like if they if they saw that, like you'd want someone to stop and it you know try to comfort you in some kind of way like it's just like it puts a different level of attention towards like detail in terms of how we have to be right yeah. because i think that this mentality you know just apply to everyone not even individuals that speak another language like would take us so much further and so i mm-hmm. want to come back to something i said i was going to put a pin in which is yeah. just your identity Right. And that influencing you as a leader, right? The lens that your parents helped you develop and appreciate just because of their background and the very real situation um, that is Taiwan Chinese or Taiwan China relations. Do you feel like you've been able to be impactful as as a leader? And and with all of this, do you feel like you are moving towards kind of uh, what you set out for yourself at the beginning of this all?
1: you know, I think I think the appropriate answer is always going to be yes, right? You always want to feel like you're making great impact and you're moving needles across the board. i' was, I will honestly say it's probably mixed. Mm-hmm. Um, there are probably places where I feel like, yeah, i I think I've made an impact. I think i if nothing else have influenced other people to maybe um think strategically or maybe think more mindfully um, about some of the choices we're making. I hope you know, I hope if we can um, define impact by, Mm. Allowing someone to broaden perspective or to take a pause before they make a decision, then okay, I can say that I've probably made some impact. Um, when I think about some of the big things that I am deeply passionate about, and right, that's po- that, right, that's policy change, cultural transformation work, liberation of of um, of, of traumatized communities, both historically and presently, like, did I make an impact? I'm not sure, you know, I'm just not mm-hmm. sure yet. I mean, I'm I'm so young in my career um, and I also know that it is lifetime and beyond lifetime work to do that. Um, you know, if I look through the lens of my family um, mm-hmm. or just the idea that I am a, a young, young Asian American man who is charting probably a slightly parallel but not similar path that many Asian American um, may be seeing themselves. I hope I'm making an impact. I hope I'm show showing that there are different ways you can make impact. There are different ways that you can change things and perhaps, you know, and maybe introspectively, maybe the most important thing is how my how I'm impacting myself
0: mm-hmm. and how
1: I'm doing my own work wow. on how I need to be um in the sense of how I need to position myself personally, professionally um, in the way of how am I serving those next generations? Because at the end of the day, right, and this is not my, this is not distinctly from my culture. I'm actually thinking about a dear friend who taught me a lot about Native American indigenous cultures about this idea of N7. So the idea of seven generations ahead are the decisions you're making right now going to make a positive impact for the next seven, seven generations of um, of the people that you hope are being benefited, right? And so, you know, does that impact happen? Yeah, that that I'm definitely seeing the impact of, as a leader, as I'm understanding more and more of the, the curtains being drawn back, right? From like the Wizard of Oz idea of the, just the realization of kind of how many things are connected, how many decisions that are made. And also just the moments where you are demanded to make, to, to decide if you're going to make a courageous decision, and the times that those are either taken or not taken, yeah, the, the impact on me has been tremendous. Um, But looking outwardly, you know, whether it's humility, or just, you know, I need to hear other people tell me, have I made a big impact? I, I would say in some places, and then other places, I would say that it's still a long road before I could even make a judgment on that.
0: I feel that. I I want all of the listeners to take away something that you said, which is really turning it to the introspective level and really asking yourself, um, you know, have you made an impact um, on yourself? Because I think that that's one of the first things I typically get when people reach out to me if they're pursuing a fellowship or if they're getting their first job out of a MSW or MPH program. It's always like, do you feel impactful? Do you feel like you're actually making change? Are you making a difference? And I think it is really easy to get lost in that. Um, particularly at, at every stage of your career, early on, you know, mid midway through, even when you get to, to whatever, you know, the height of your career is supposed to be. I think for uh, what I will brand us as social justice warriors, I think that that's what we, you know, we care about the most, you know, obviously like, are we genuinely moving the needle? And so can you describe just, you know, what your journey has been like? Cause you mentioned that you're young, um, your director, you know, uh, still under the age of 40 um, and, you know, a father as well. So can you mention just what is, what has this journey been like for you specifically being a person that has this change agent mentality, being someone that came in the door with this lens of understanding history, policy, culture, and the impact on health, and then having to go into the healthcare system in which many people do not have that framework how has your journey been navigating that space
1: yeah that's a that's a great question um i guess it's difficult cuz it's it's going to sound really philosophical and i apologize for it you know i i have always walked into my roles regardless of what they were as as the idea of I hold a set of skills that I that I have learned and that I've honed, right? This is something that I have learned from many mentors, many teachers, many friends, many, and then even many adversaries, right? You, you learn many great lessons from adversaries. And while I have all these skills, it is not ultimately about me. Mm. It is about the communities that I have determined, or that I have chosen, as what deeply drives my mission, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I gave the story about South Africa. At the end of the day, you know, I'm not sitting in these decision-making rooms or in the room as just a, someone who's trying to give advice, thinking like, oh, what's my next career jump? or how do I look real good and say, you know, the great thing in the moment. So then everyone remembers who said it and how they said it. It is about in that very moment when I hold, you know, some level of power or some level of voice because I got to be in the room, right? And I think that's one of the most important things about is if you wanna make change, you have to be in the room, right? That's that's just, that's just what you have to understand. But when you're in the room, it's, um, the communities that are the most needing of a voice oftentimes are never allowed in those rooms and that is an intentional choice that right. those voices are not allowed in the room so when you have a set of skills and you know what your mission is right your personal your, your own personal mission and hopefully it aligns with the mission that you are at that you are at least going to carve out inside the organization you are a part of it's what are you going to do for your for those communities. Right. As an Asian American, I think about all the time, not of not of the very well placed Asian Americans who, you know, rightly so have done very well. Their families have done remarkably well, given the amount of other pieces that have been against them um, historically and politically and things like that. But I also center the idea of like there's not that many Southeast Asians who have a voice anywhere
0: Mm. in any of the
1: choices they make. And I'm not Southeast Asian. But what I can understand is I understand what it's like to not have a voice. I understand what it's like to have my parents never have a voice in their own decision making. And so, you know, to be a young careerist, you know, what I would always th- what I've always thought about is, you know, um, the the people that you the relationships that you cultivate right and that is an intentional thing you have to cultivate relationships you have to decide which relationships you want you have to determine who you want as mentors you have to determine who you want as your kind of your collective um, group of people who will be your critics your co-creators um your confidants and things like that that's going to be the ultimate power you actually have because at the end of the day if you get if you get the role you want and you are C and it starts with a, the word C in there somewhere great. Um, and you're going to make decisions, um, and on the road to get there, I mean, I think what I've learned the most as a young professional, and I, and I hope other young professionals are learning this, maybe, maybe they're being taught otherwise, but I hope there's a part of them that still remembers this, is that you don't get very far by yourself, Um, and, you know, getting really far, but not seeing your own colleagues getting anywhere doesn't feel great, um, and I'll be honest, it doesn't feel great for me. Um, um, and then the other part to your question um of just how how you do this work, it's, I think you also have to be very, very honest with what your priorities are for yourself. Yeah. Um, so like, like Winston said, you know, I'm a father. um you know, i'm a I'm a husband. I'm a young careerist, I'm a director, right? I'm all these things. And at the end of the day, I need to make the decision of how, of just what's the most, how do I prioritize those in my life? And at the end of the day, what do I wanna see on my tombstone, right? Do I wanna see on my tombstone like, oh man, this is a cutthroat director who, you know, made the choices that like X, Y, and Z, right? Is that, is that how I ultimately wanna be written down and how my family talks about me? Or is it this person gave everything he could to do the best and the right thing for the amount for the the people that he held dear in his heart. Right. Like those are those choices you make, right. And every day you get to make that choice differently. Right. And so some days you may have to choose the cutthroat thing, knowing that at the end of the day, that last choice you're going to make is for your family or for the communities you serve. So not sure if that answers your question, but, you know, as a, you know, I'm, I'm young in my career. Um, I've gotten very far, pretty fast. I'm not going to lie about that. And what I'll also say is that, you know, That has everything to do with your willingness to learn, your willingness to seek out the people who want to see you succeed. And it's also about being, being able to own your truth, but do it in a way that people see the, the passion you have as opposed to the,
0: um, Frustration or anger. The frustration or... you have, yeah, in, in mm-hmm. what you want to see. I love that. That's such an important distinction because I think, and you, you know, um, for everyone that's listening, you know, Chris has been a colleague my, of mine since I started my fellowship, but, um, you know, you were very instrumental in providing me a model on how to channel that energy, right? Because I think that we all... As graduate students, um, as undergraduate students, even as early careers that may not be in the position that we want to be in just yet, we we see the inequities, we see the cracks and the faults in the structure in the system, and we're just so energized to do something about it. We could talk before we get the position; we could talk to anybody for ten hours about all the things that we would do if we had the position, if we had the title. Yeah. Then you get in and you recognize, like, oh, okay. In order to make all of this work, I have to actually play the game to an extent. And I have to play the game well if I really want to be successful at moving the barriers or creating more access, at eliminating some of these inequities. And it could just be a challenge. I think it can really just be a challenge if you don't have individuals who have done it successfully coming before you. And one of the things that you said to me that I think that you've always done a great job. At is wanting to see people succeed, right? And I think that is probably the biggest thing that I would want to reinforce for anybody, any health equity champion, any you know social justice warrior, anybody that's out there listening that really you know has a, a burning passion inside them to do something is it's about connecting with those like minded individuals that you know can continue to add that development, um, but also help you navigate you know, some of the the the, the things that you're going to encounter, right? Because I, you know, and I'll pivot again uh, gently, but I know that there are some things that we won't get into specifically just regarding this current climate in healthcare yeah. that you are still having to kind of knock down, you know, some barriers and some walls. And so without getting too specific, you know, just thinking about where we are with the intersection between the LGBTQIA community, and healthcare, right? You know, and you have done things at the local level at our organization to really get us up to speed. Um, And so I would love it if you could kind of, you know, maybe just describe what that process, what that journey was like for you. But then also after being successful on getting, you know, a few of our hospitals, a special designation for the LGBTQIA community or targeted towards that community, having to kind of still appreciate like, hey, everything takes time. So maybe, you know, this was getting this HEI status was a certain win, but now really taking a step further is going to take even more time. How do you process that? Right. And how do you deal with, with that?
1: Yeah, no, that's real. I mean, and I, it's a really good way to walk through a tangible thing that I've been blessed to have been a part of but also talk about how you understand goal setting and how you actually understand impact and how you understand how you don't burn yourself out because you're like, you know, man, in five years, I didn't transform the United States. Right. Like it's it's those moments, you just have to kind of, um, kind of humble yourself a little bit. So, you know, first and foremost, as a, as, um, you know, just as a full disclosure, I identify as a cisgender heterosexual man. So, you know, when we talk about the LGBTQIA community, I understand that I'm not part of that community um, and that my definition of, uh, and that my identity as an allyship rests solely on the LGBTQIA community to to define that on my behalf and whether they accept me as such. Um, But to the point of the human rights campaigns, health equality index, which is something that healthcare um, across the board can participate in, one of the things in my very early in my career that I noticed was just, that was just something that we didn't talk about a lot. Um, there wasn't a lot of conversation about the health outcomes for the LGBTQIA community, um, but the research was there. The qualitative data was there, right? We knew that there were people who identified as lesbian, gay, bisexual, and this full spectrum of sexual orientation um, whose health outcomes were drastically worse, right? And then you had the intersectional identities of race, Um, and gender and things like that, then it just got even more appalling. Um, You then add on to gender identity and the wonderful and beautiful spectrum of gender identity, right? Just every health outcome just basically showed you that if you were a sexual minority or a gender minority, your outcome was just going to be horrific for for the most part. Um, And then you hear stories, right? From friends, from colleagues about what it's like to be refused your partner's name on a birth certificate because Mm -hmm. you're both women. Or what it's like to be, um, what it's like to literally be told to your face that you won't be taken care of by a provider, right? Because you identify as a way that just was not okay with that person, right? And then you start seeing, and I would say you start seeing yourself in that, right? You start seeing yourself in man, like, I know moments in my life where I wouldn't have been served or historically where, you know, as an Asian American, I was never even considered a citizen, right? There was no possible way under Supreme Court ruling, I could have been allowed to be a citizen, right? Or you know, the person I chose to marry was not legal, like 70 years ago, right? And so, you know, you you, you draw these connections of empathy and um, and trauma. And so what you do is you set a goal of, you know, whether or not we're going to reach a designation or things like that, what we're going to do is we're going to find connections with people. Yep. That's the most important thing is mm. trying to trying to just create the connections of saying, you know, like, I can't promise you certain things the one thing i can promise is that i want to be here for you yeah and and how can i do that right how how can i either create space on your behalf how can i maintain space on your behalf how do i fill space on your behalf depending on the needs that you have and how do you how do you understand the stories how do you understand your own connection to that story and then ultimately how you think about what ultimately is a designation, right? A designation is something where people can get proud of the things you do. But really what it is, is that it's your commitment to to centering people that have never been centered in history, right? And so an HEI designation, great. It's great if you are a top performer. It's great that you're a leader. It's great that you participate in it. But what it really wants to show is how often do you center a couple of identities that historically in healthcare have never been centered? um, And being able to say that we want that community to feel like they actually belong here and that they'll actually be treated as such that they deserve that so when we think about like the the hardships that come with that is just you know no matter what i feel or what i believe people aren't ready not not everyone's ready to hear that not everyone's ready to make those changes right that goes back to the courage and the willingness and the other factors that go into place um and when i define courage i mean not saying that you have to make a big, massive decision tomorrow, but you have to have the courage of understanding there's, you know, are there factors involved that are going to create additional risk and and do you have the courage to accept such risk, right? So, mm. you know, you think about people, you know, you think about the people before Certain civil rights legislation, they had to make really courageous moments, right? It's it's great when people say like, "I totally would have been someone in Washington." I'm like, "Yeah, you probably wouldn't have." Um, Or like, you know, "I totally would have participated in the Underground Railroad." I'm like, I doubt that. I really highly doubt that. At the end of the day, you would have made that choice. It's the real idea of when someone looks at you in the face, or you actually know someone who identifies as such. And I'm at this point not talking about LGBTQIA. I'm talking about anyone who's a who's a minoritized or a Trump or a um, or someone who has been traumatized by healthcare, it's looking at them and saying, Are you willing to be courageous enough to center them over yourself? Right. And then that's just those mm. moments where, um, you know, it's a long road. You know, I don't know a time in modern history where the LGBTQIA community had an even moment of the feeling that equality was close for them, mm. or that they could even be out and proud or out and alive. Yeah. And so I also have to humble myself in the idea of, like, I can't forcibly change a region right now. Right. You know, right. it wouldn't be honest. It, it wouldn't it wouldn't help be helpful because then you'd create an additional unintentional target on the back of an already traumatized and marginalized converse, um community. It's, you know, what can we do? What can I do? But more importantly, how do I connect? How do I connect some these community voices to the things that matter and then even and this is probably where the social work and public health degrees um, come into great play is how do you also align it to other people's goals where it just becomes a thing where like you really can't say no to it if it's along the lines of what that goal is now it can be a personal thing where you just don't want it or there's other factors but the idea that like this is good for for many reasons and it aligns with other things um, it just takes time right and you know and the way that i can rel- relieve myself slightly or forgive myself of the frustration that i have um is some is just the idea that you know i've i've only been doing this like 8 years yep. right like right like and i and i look at the the people who have been doing this work their whole lives 50 yeah. 60 70 years the people who have died not seeing certain things happen right like who am i to think that i'm better than than some of the people who have died doing the work that it just never got it never got the place where they wanted right so I think there's also this idea of um of reminding yourself that like we're not all you know we're not all we're not all going to be MLK we're not all going to be Harvey milk we're not all going to be Dick Gregory right like we're just not but you can do parts and you can definitely do parts of looking at the people that who are on your, who are in your address book on your phone and saying, am I doing, am I doing my best for that person? I hope so. Right. So not sure if that helps out, but
0: no, it's- that's, a, no, that's amazing. It's, it's, that's, uh, I think, um, it, it, you know, it's step by step. It's, it's, you know, chunk by chunk. Um, and I think that there's so many things that you said, like, Throughout the course of this conversation that I just hope resonates with people because, you know, not I think a lot of people, when we think about success, when we think about, you know, what that looks like being a super wealthy, C sweet something, but also making all this transformational change. Like I think that's like the best of both worlds. The individuals like you and I are individuals that aspire to be like you. We typically go in there with this mindset. And it's funny, you know, you mentioned Dick Gregory, Harvey Milk, the MLKs of the world. It's like there's a bunch of people that came before them yep. um, that were doing that laid the you know foundation. There were a bunch of people that were around them at the time, also doing uh, a bunch of things, right? That we do not know of, like literally thousands of different yep. figures um, in each fight, in each era, in each you know battle for equality that. All played a monumental role. um And one of the things that you said earlier was like, you know, when you get that seat, it's not about saying the thing that people are going to remember in some preachy NLK tone and you feel good about it. Although there may be currency in that, right? There may be some capital that you can leverage, but it is really about centering the folks that you are there for. And I think that that's something that I also tell myself now. And I've been able to appreciate one of, um, our good colleagues and actually our first guest on the podcast, A. Jolly, I remember when he told me like, yo, anything that you're going to make do that's going to be impactful, make change and or be sustainable is going to take at least five years to really yeah. like get mm-hmm. off the ground. Like this idea that you can come in, say something in the meeting, show a few graphs, and then there's just going to be change. It's just naive. And then on top of that, not only is it going to take five years to really gain some traction, it'll probably take another five years to really be implemented mm-hmm. at a point in which you can say, okay, wow, we've really done something here. And so I think that, you know, people may end up being a Harvey Milk's right? Of, of, you know, uh, their uh, respective fight, their respective kind of um, uh, battle. But at the end of the day, we all should just try to be, you know, the people around those people, right? Look, you know, towards them for inspiration, but just continue to be around them. Because I think that that is a really grounding mentality that young professionals can have going forward that will make the burnout decrease significantly, right? Mm -hmm. Because one thing that we didn't talk about, but we could have for, you know, ad nauseum is burnout when it comes to this and having this mission because it can be really easy to go to work, see what's on paper, see your organization's values and say, "Eh, that's what we do. That's what I'm going to do and kind of wipe your hands, you know, clean at the end of the day. But the reality is like, no, this takes a lot of intentional self-work. And that's the biggest thing that I've actually taken from our conversation today that, you know, this is an individual journey as much as it is you trying to be some superhero for a variety of different communities yeah. right it's really an uh, a journey about yourself
1: yeah no i love everything you said and i think the two things that i that that i want to take away from what you what you just synthesized was you know first and foremost man no one sets out to be a superhero mm-hmm. you look at any yeah. like you look at comic books oh, you look at yeah. history no one was like i'm going to be the superhero and this is how i'm mm-hmm. going to do it You're a superhero because the people around you supported you and you just, you know, the collective got to a certain point where you were just the the lucky or unlucky one who became a face of it. Right. Like um, and I think that's one. And I think you said that really. I think you said that beautifully in the sense of, you know, maybe a way that you reduce burnout is you don't center yourself as the superhero, center yourself as the hundreds of people who supported MLK, the hundreds of people who the thousands of people who will never be written in history, but were pivotal in how some of these superheroes that we aspire to be actually got there, right? Like how many people, like joking, complete joking, like LeBron James ain't gonna win championships by himself.
0: Right, no, so no it's but not everyone, but that's a real fact.
1: No one's gonna write in the history book some of these players who helped him get to the, some of those, like some players Absolutely. will be written in there, but you you gotta know there's a few people who like, you give it 50 years, they're not gonna know who played on LeBron James's team, but, those, but it was those athletes who understood their role didn't aspire to be better than LeBron James, but said, I know what my role is. And my role is to win a championship. My role is to, is to do this for my community, to do this for my team. And we're going to do it with that level of humility. And, you know, for many of us young people, maybe it is, you go in and you understand that you are not, I mean, if you really want to be the CEO, man, you go for it. Yeah. But maybe for some of us, that is the level of burnout we don't want right we don't want to put that on our family we don't want to put that on our own work life just yeah. assessment um it's can you go in and say i am going to we are we are going to as a collective as a generation right we know that as a generation the millennials and the gen zers are coming up um to take over a lot of leadership positions is it instead of is is there the idea that like I'm not going to make a decision. We are going to make that decision, right? And that's how. And how do you share that? How do you share wow. power? How do you share burnout? Really? How do you share? How do you share that level across and say we're going to do it differently? It's not going to come down to one person. It's going to come down to our generation trying to figure this out and trying to do the right thing for each other. And perhaps that's, oh, perhaps that's a wonderful way, um, for us to think about like, that's maybe that is, um. Kind of the liberation that we're all trying to search for is that man may, may, maybe a lot of other cultures have it right that this is a collective this is a collective concern this is not a me concern this is like yeah we're not going to get it done in five years there's no way we're not going to liberate we're not going to liberate healthcare in five years we're not going to decolonize um you know our, our community we're not going to decolonize policy um right now but at the end of the day like can I find three or four people who I'm trying to positively impact, bring them joy, bring them reprieve, listen to them, help them heal? Or can I find a couple extra mentors? Not and I don't mean like the mentors in the sense of like the people who are giving us knowledge, but I mean like lateral mentorship yeah. where we're just trying to help each other. We're just trying to um be that, be that shoulder when we need to be. You know, maybe that, maybe that is how you build. A, and I know we've had this conversation, Winston. Um, perhaps some of us were a generation too early. Yeah.
0: And
1: the things we and the things that we foresee as we want to accomplish, and there's nothing wrong with that. But perhaps it, it is our role to set that next generation up. to It's just easier. It's just easier for their decisions to come, right? And that is a very worthy goal to go for. Like, imagine if every millennial and Gen Zer came together as leaders and said, "This is this is how we lead now." And it may not transform anything in this moment, right? We're still going to fight a lot of older decisions and a lot of different cultural expectations of us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But hopefully, when Gen Alpha gets to be in these seats, completely different world.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's a mic drop, man. That's a that's a mic drop. Uh, you know, we we are uh, we are we're we're at time um and you know we typically end with kind of like you know what's the best piece of advice but i think you've given so much and what you just said um is inspirational to me and it and i've always kind of thought like that you know especially since i got into grad school like you know this is an us thing and we all have to collectively really be accountable for the change that we want to see um and i think It's just a great reinforcement uh, for myself, hopefully for our listeners as they continue to move forward. Um, Because I think that, like you said, no one has to be a superhero. You know, that's really not how it works. (laughs) Um, You know, maybe in the real world, we have those aspirations. But, you know, we know what we want to see. We have to understand where we are. Um, Obviously do the work, show up. But, you know, I want to just say thank you for being able to give us some of your time Um, And some of your insights on how you've been doing all of this, Uh, because, again, like I said, you're a model for me. I know you will be and continue to be, excuse me, a model for other young professionals that are coming up that have the same kind of passion. Uh, In closing, I guess I'll just ask, you know, is there anywhere, you know, on the Internet or social media where folks, if they want to follow you, uh, (laughs) maybe have some follow up or some questions uh, that that they can have access to you?
1: Yeah, so like I am not very active on social media, and that's just being a, you know, an older millennial. I, I won't even call it as an older millennial. I just, I just didn't want to get that involved. But yeah, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram, and you can find me on LinkedIn. Right, it's just Christopher Fan. You'll, you'll find me. You'll probably see pictures of my kids, and that's probably how you'll locate me pretty quickly. But if you want to message me through any of those. Um, social media accounts i'm more than happy to connect um you know i'm not i don't have a present on on x i think is what it's (laughs) called now yeah (laughs) um i don't i don't TikTok. um so you know if you want to get a hold of me it's i'm pretty much that whole dial-up generation (laughs) we kind of stopped (laughs) at a certain point of technology um but yeah you can you can find me and i'm more than happy to, to connect with any of you
0: all right well chris thank you so much for joining the healthcare hustle man absolutely thank you so much well that's it for the episode and we want to thank you for listening to the healthcare hustle podcast make sure to check us out each month on spotify and apple podcasts and stay up to date with the healthcare hustle fam by following our page on linkedin the marathon continues so keep on hustling